All right. Are you simulcasting also on uh, Facebook? Um, no, we're gonna um, we're gonna post this when we're done. Gotcha. I look forward to the conversation. My uh, apology for being late. I don't know why I didn't think that it was East Coast, West Coast time. So I had set my alarm to go off in another couple of hours, realizing that you guys are on the other side of tomorrow or closer tomorrow, I should say, than I am. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But it's good to see you, brother. Um, I'm glad you're in good spirits and um, you are here to join us. Uh, Just give me one minute. Okay. All right. We're going to start right now. All right, Peace and Black Power family, this is your host, Raheem Shabazz, and we are here for another episode of Necessary Blackness Podcast, and I am joined by my lovely co-host, Marcy Lee, and today we are interviewing Kiti Awadu, right? And Kiti Awadu is an author, broadcast journalist, clinical nutritionist, scientific futuristic, and longtime biology science writer. He has an extended footprint around the world in broadcast, ICT, health, and wellness, and land development projects. This is his 36th published book. Let me say that again, Black family. This is his 36th published book, and he is joining us. How are you doing, my brother? Hello, welcome. Greetings to my sister, Marcy, my brother, Rahim. I am doing absolutely wonderful. It's a pleasure to be invited to this conversation today. I just want to make one correction. Literally an hour ago, I just published my 38th book, my fourth (laughs) new book of the year. So, you know, while everyone else is uh, under lockdown, we have decided to be just as absolutely productive as possible. Wow. Congratulations. It's a pleasure. The new book is a bit alarming. I did not necessarily enjoy writing it. I'm sure that'll come up today. Of, um, But, you know, 38 books, it's almost like giving birth to a child every time I complete the process. Mm. And to give birth to four babies in one year, there must be some happy mothers around there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're going to get started. I wanted so much to cover in your book, um, Panic. Yes. What the coronavirus pandemic tells us about the state of the world. There was so much information in there. So I'm going to start off with this question. And I wrote my questions down because I wanted to make sure that I asked the question exactly how I intended to. So I my first question that. for you is in your book, you report that the U.S. represents less than 5% of the world's population and claims more than 30% of COVID deaths. You also say that the U.S. spends more on medical research than any other nation and spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country. How do we then reconcile the climbing U.S. death rate in comparison to the more tame death rates of other countries? Mm-hmm. In reconciling it, there are these paradoxes, these contradictions of numbers and statistics. Now, as a scientist, it's my duty, really, to use data-based evidence to confirm everything that I say, especially the various proposals, hypotheses that I put forward in the book Panic are really quite radical and, of course, dissenting from the mainstream. 
just this morning, I was continuing the same process this afternoon and looking at the state of Wisconsin, which has a relatively small representation of black people in the population in the United States population, black people, along with mixed race, black included, are said to represent some 14 percent of the U.S. population. But in the state of Wisconsin, we represent only 6 percent of the population. Why then are we representing 8.3 percent of the COVID diagnoses in Wisconsin and 16.4 percent of the COVID deaths in that state? The contradictions lead us to understand that there's something else going on. And as you can tell by the book, by the time we get to the summary of what this is really all about, we cannot help but realize that this is a continuation of a pattern of attempting to exclude Black people from the American population. I'm talking about eugenics and genocide, population control, that we can trace the evidence of that back to as early as 1937. Some might even trace it back to the beginning of the post-emancipation period in the United States. Now, you speak of the post-emancipation period. Um, that was a time that we all reckon with and we know all too well. And another thing that we know a lot about is fear and panic, right? That's so I want right. to how does fear and panic impact the body and brain. And that was one of the subjects you talk about in your book. I want you to elaborate for our uh, listening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fear is used to control behavior. Fear antagonizes, excites us. Of course, many of us use this acronym, false evidence appearing real. Well, in the book, I do talk about fear and panic, but from an empowering position instead of one of disempowering our people. And we, um, I have a particular acronyms, and excuse me if I can't find things as fast as I normally would. My mouse, as I was rushing around the house to put the computer into the room where I broadcast from, um, the mouse from somehow disconnected. But Fear, our fear, our panic are empowering acronyms, forward thinking and planning for the future, enabling economic systems to empower our people's sustainability. Africa has the power to, to save the world, has the resources to save the world, and our responsiveness and return on investment in reparations. So we redefine these acronyms. Panic, again, panic as we know it, creates a heightened sense of urgency. And in our world, we want to create a heightened sense of urgency, especially when it comes to our people of African descent, uh, urgently defending ourselves, our own self-interest, community, and family. Yeah, you speak on fear in the book, as you just stated, and a lot of people are saying that fear somehow um, has a negative impact on the immune system, which leads me to my second question, which I think it may have something to do with it, but I'm not sure. So I'm going to need you to make that connection if it's there. Mm -hmm. You state that viruses are most likely naturally functioning components of everyday cellular activity. And you also include a quote by Claude Bernard that the terrain is everything, the germ is nothing. Is there a correlation between these two thoughts? Yes, there is. And just one wonderfully complex question. I'll do the best I can to summarize it in as few words as possible. On one hand, fear creates heightened states of anxiety, 
worry. It actually does have a, a visceral response to our body and a glandular response. We do know the adrenal glands, which sit on the kidneys, therefore have very rapid access to the blood, secrete adrenaline, the fight or flight hormone, and that this adrenaline response actually takes over the body and will actually disturb or disrupt other body systems, such as the immune system. So when we live in a heightened state of stress, which I don't think anyone could deny that black people in the United States are under heightened states of both mental and environmental stress, then the adrenal glands are working overtime, eventually resulting in something that's known as adrenal fatigue. And under adrenal fatigue, undeniably, the immune system is refracted, is injured, and we're thus more susceptible to a spectrum of inflammation-related diseases and disorders. And the second part of your question, give me that again one time. I want to build a bridge between these two. Uh, I said, is there a correlation between the two thoughts talking about terrain? He was saying mm-hmm. that terrain yes. is everything and a germ is nothing. That's so right. Given- mm-hmm. Perfect, perfect question. Perfect bridge. We go back with this idea that the terrain is everything. We go back to an 18th century debate discussion between two noted French scientists. Of course, Louis Pasteur seems to have won the argument. We have this whole fear of bacteria and infection and everything. Pasteurization comes from his name. So according to Pasteur's theory, it was the germ that was causation of the disease disorder. But he was in a debate with other scientists of his time, the most notable of which was Edwin Beauchamp. And Beauchamp proposed the idea that it is not the pathogen, it is the environment, the terrain, so to say. So therefore, we can give an example of how this might be applicable. Say you and I and 90 other people are traveling on an airplane. And on that airplane, there's one, two, three people on the plane who are hacking and coughing. Obviously, they're suffering from some sort of acute respiratory disorder, upper respiratory or lower respiratory disorder. According to Pasteur's theory, because we are in a closed environment on that airplane and the air is circulating, everyone on the plane who's susceptible to a respiratory infection should get that respiratory infection. But you and I, and Brother Rahim, because we stay so strong in our healthy immune boostering lifestyle, we realize I'm not going to catch that. That's not my intention to catch it. This is the way I live. I fortify my body with all of the critical nutrients to recognize the immune system is going to function just as it is. Last point I want to make, when it comes to this idea of viruses, 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 we really need to stop and investigate. I have a whole chapter on what is virology, an investigation into virology. Because if we are really to fear viruses, then people have got to be aware of the fact that circulating throughout the atmosphere every day on every square meter of the Earth's surfaces, as many as 25 million viruses fall out of the sky. So viruses are ubiquitous. Then we might ask a fundamental question, what is a virus? That's a good question, and that leads me to my next question. Brother, do you believe in the notion that COVID-19 was a planned conspiracy? There are words that are being used, such as pandemic, 
There are many people who believe that COVID-19, having been patented, therefore represents a biologically engineered pathogen. Mm -hmm. I have become using the word scamdemic more so than anything else. Um, there are a lot of complexity to all three of these particular points. For one, plandemic, meaning that this has been a new, new Pearl Harbor. If we originally look at first Pearl Harbor, the entry of the United States into World War II, there was advanced knowledge because of the cracking of the Japanese diplomatic codes that an attack on Pearl Harbor was imminent. That's why they moved the aircraft, uh, aircraft carriers out to sea and allowed the attack to happen because the United States was ready then to enter World War II after the other empires had been sufficiently decimated so that the United States could inherit that global empirical status and, and at the end of that war. The, the new, a new Pearl Harbor was a description of a directive that was kind of issued by a group called the New American Century, PNAC, several years before the 911 incidences. It talked about for the United States to maintain a powerful hegemonic position in the world by controlling energy resources, trading oil in the petrodollar, it would need a quote, we would need a quote unquote, new Pearl Harbor to sufficiently disrupt everything to allow the United States to then assert a new level of control over these regions of the planet that had the most oil production. So hence, after the new Pearl Harbor of 911 incidences, the United States goes in and destroys Iraq. They it subsequently have destroyed Libya, destroyed Syria, destroyed a number of nations that actually appeared in a directive that was um, revealed by Wesley Clark, former U.S. Um, uh, he was worked in the State Department, high official in the State Department, who said he had seen a directive that the United States had intention of destroying seven countries of these oil-producing countries, Iran, the only one who hasn't been destroyed, but the others have essentially been destroyed. So what I'm saying in the book is that COVID-19 represents a new, new Pearl Harbor, a sufficiently disruptive event that those who might be able to plan and carry out such an event will impose a new order in order that they could not have been able to impose had sufficient had such a level of disruption not occurred. Others refer to that as what is called the Hegelian dialectic. Chaos, mm. response to chaos, and then a solution. Absolutely. One thing, one thing, like when people read your book, they'll see that you go in depth with medical terminology, definitions, you speak on these uh, conspiracy theories, kind of lay them out. So I thought that was something that was very interesting about the book. And you also talk about the COVID-19 test. So this is another question in regards to that. Uh, you have questioned the validity of COVID-19 tests and you have raised concerns regarding false negative results. In your opinion, have the accuracy of testing improved or is there still a sense of doubt and skepticism remaining? Mm -hmm. Yes, good question. And you'd mentioned about false negatives, but also one of my our greatest concerns is false positives. <laughs> the basis for this type of testing, which are called uh, immune assays, and ELISAs is kind of a foundation of this technology, enzyme-linked immunosorbent assays. This technology goes back about 40 years or so. And the introduction of these antibody-based assays to determine not if there is the germ 
in your body because they cannot find the virus. They have no test for the virus. And when we scour the literature, you know, the book had 173 references. When we scour the literature, we just cannot find anyone who's saying we have validated what's called Koch's postulates, which is a means of validating this is the germ. It always causes the disease and it's always found in every case. So what they have done is they say, well, we can't find the germ. They did this with HIV and AIDS, and that allowed us to expose that as another massive scam damage. So we cannot find the germ, the pathogen, the agent, the virus. So what we're going to look for is markers that you have been exposed to the virus and produce antibodies against it, for which we're going to look for, according to their philosophy, we're going to look for proteins that are indicative of antigens that are part of the antibodies to the virus that we cannot find. There are so many flaws in that equation. It's absolutely ridiculous that they've been able to foister this on the public for so long. So of the more than 90 now COVID-19 tests that have been out there, numerous questions arise. For one, if we understand that antibodies won't show up until weeks after infection, where did the first COVID-19 tests come from when they sort of first started testing this right off the bat? Uh, there's so many problems with this, but here's the bottom line that I say. Unless there is a valid test to absolutely identify with 100% sensitivity, specificity, and positive predictive value, then it's hard to say who is or who is not infected. And without a positive way of identifying those infected, how can you say you have an infectious disease epidemic? Okay, now you talked about the testing. In your book, on page 140, you have a chapter called No Vaccine for Me, Please. What is your take on vaccine and vaccinations? Good questions all around. And I appreciate the both of you taking the time to actually read the book. I'm really proud of you. And this also reminds me of this other paradox about these antibodies. I wanted to make this part of the previous statement is that the same people who say we cannot find the germ, but we only find your antibody protection against the germ are saying that now you are infected with it. But these are the same people who have for years been saying we're going to give you vaccines to create the antibodies so you will be protected from it. That, uh, the, what we call the old crisscross. Steve Coakley used to talk about the crisscross. Two contradictory, conflicting philosophies supposed to be accepted as the extension of one truth. And so, therefore, if we have the antibodies or the antigens, the IgA, IgM, and IgG antibody components they say they're looking for, then good. That means I'm protected. Because you can't find the germ. So uh, I kind of misplaced your question. If you might want to shoot that back at me, I'll try and go right at the heart of it. I was talking about uh, in your book, the chapter, uh, No Vaccines for Me. me. I I want you to talk a little bit about uh, vaccinations and and, uh, vaccines. Because uh, President Trump, well, let me call him Donald Trump. Because he ain't ain't nothing. I refer to him as Orange 45. Yeah, supposedly he has uh, COVID-19, you know, according to CDC, it's supposed to be a 14-day incubation period where you you, you quarantine yourself for 
14 days, right? Um, he's currently a post-COVID tour where he invited 2,000 people to the White House today, right? Um, they gave him some medicine. Sounds like it was a vaccine to me, but we don't know whether that's true or not. But what is your take on vaccination and vaccine? Because mm-hmm. it clearly, yeah, your chapter says no vaccines for me. Please. My, directly on that point, my take on vaccinations is I refuse, according to the international laws that exist, to submit my body to human experimentation. Mm. All vaccines, all over the years, for the decades they've been doing it, all of them are human experimentation, which is why they're constantly changing the vaccine formulas. And of course, there is a grave danger from injury from vaccines. I'm going to make this as simple as I possibly can. And uh, both of you, use your logic on this. What is in a vaccine? That's a complex question but it basically boils down to three components, three root components. Number one, the pathogen, the germ, the agent to which is we consider dangerous and we want to develop an immunity. Number two, to mass produce that vaccine, they have to grow that agent in a susceptible culture medium. And so they use DNA and various animal parts from 11 different species including DNA from aborted babies, babies, they call it human diploid cells. And number three, once this putrid mix is growing in this, this concoction, they can't just take that concoction and inject it into you. It'll kill everyone if it is what they said it is. So they have to deactivate it using a spectrum of chemicals that are essentially supposed to kill the momentum of the growing disease. So here we have three components. Number one, the pathogen. It will hurt you. Number two, the culture medium. Injecting DNA from 11 different species directly into your bloodstream will wreck your immune system. It can hurt you. Number three, the chemicals used to deactivate that, if you take those chemicals directly, it will hurt you. So Mm -hmm. therefore, the theory with vaccines is, if I hit you in the head with a hammer, it could hurt you. If I stab you in the kidneys with a knife, it could hurt you. If I shoot you in the chest, it could hurt you. But if I do all three simultaneously, it'll be good for you. Wow. Okay, so the the next question, because that was pretty deep, and I think no one, I have never heard no one break down the components. And when you, you have so many people who's trying to be healthy, like even vegans or people who want to avoid additives and things like that in their foods. Uh, even GMOs. But now you're telling us that there's actually a chemical being injected in our bodies for these vaccinations. I think uh, that would probably um, hit people a little hard when they Mm -hmm. find that out. I have Um, lists of these chemicals and uh, they actually number over 70. If if you include the whole uh, spectrum of vaccinations given to children in the United States, many of these chemicals, such as a long list of antibiotics, have very dangerous side effects that have been listed, uh, readily listed by the manufacturers, but people don't assume that these dangerous chemicals are in the vaccinations that they put into their children's veins. Right. That's I tell you one thing, if I put into a bowl, that's right. If I put into a bowl, the ingredients that go into vaccines and I fed that to my children, I would get arrested for child endangerment and maybe attempted murder. 
Okay, so also in your book, you reveal some of the reasons why you why you were compelled to write the book. And some of them uh, were poor governance, um, economic depression, and human relations. But there's one motivation which stands out, and um, that is that you see yourself as one of few voices who dissent against the distortion of science. Speak on how it has inspired you um, with this body of work and your other bodies of work. <laughs> My father was a chemist. He was the son of sharecroppers, so he came from very humble roots. He met my mother while they were in college. She was a college student at, I think, about age 15 or 16. So she was a genius, just really brilliant. And the product of their union produced four sons. One of the things that my father did was he put his college textbook library in our house growing up. And our mother homeschooled us. I was the youngest of four. So by the time I was in the first grade, I was able to read from my father's college textbooks. I recall teaching myself to speak French before I even got into the first grade from reading his college textbooks. So all throughout my life, we had this very close science to our household. And I was a, a brilliant and outstanding student throughout my years. But you know something? No one ever suggested to me when I graduated high school, would you like to go to college? Our mother had passed at a very young age. And I don't know why my father himself, a, an industrial chemist and a college graduate, never said to his best academic son, son, would you like to go to college? I think my oldest brother kind of wore out his pocketbook. He wasn't getting in that again. But you know something? I was extremely fortunate that within one year after graduating high school, I, I found a job working in a biological research laboratory. I was a cryogenics technician in a reproductive laboratory engaged in cell biology. And so I spent what would have been my college years actually working in the field in a laboratory. And when I left there, I kept up this fascination with science throughout my life. So as I traveled for the better part of 30 years as a musician, I would spend my days many times in libraries at UCLA and USC and Johns Hopkins and Emory University, great libraries all across the country. I was fascinated with science and science efforts. Then after this thing called HIV AIDS appeared in the mid 1980s, I decided to make a commitment on behalf of my people since I can read this literature with great comprehension, I'm going to master this topic and let our people know how we can best protect ourselves. So that has been my lifelong fascination with science. And now I've taken it even further by developing systems by which we protect, protect ourselves um, from infectious diseases and other types of threats or bodily, uh, bodily threats, but also that we can project ourselves as not only capable of healing ourselves, but healing the world. The world has long been in need for African people to stand back up and reclaim their throne. Yeah. Jay, so I, I have one question. This is my last question. I think Marcia is going to ask one more question and then end it out. Um, and we definitely got to have you back on, brother. I want to say this. Um, it, it is a pleasure to um, always speak to you and just to know the vast amount of knowledge that you have and what you're doing with this knowledge to enhance and help our people. Okay. So my question is, in your book, you talk about the seven principles of optimal health. Can you discuss those seven principles and how can that help 
the viewership and the listenership of Necessary Blackness podcast? Man, that's the best question we could ever ask because bottom line is if COVID is real or if it's not real, we have to do what's necessary to protect ourselves, protect our families, protect our communities from opportunistic infections, as well as protect ourselves from non-communicable diseases, which when we look at what's behind the COVID deaths, the so-called 21 comorbidities, well, even if COVID didn't exist, if you found a way to add those 21 comorbidities together and call them one cause of death, that would undeniably be the leading cause of death itself. So with the seven principles, this is the system that I've designed called Living Superfood. It's the disease prevention, and it reverses chronic diseases in a remarkably short period of time as well. The seven principles cover everything. They are, first and foremost, the breath. Earlier, we talked about stresses and adrenal glandular function and the, uh, the adrenal fatigue that can take place. Say someone cuts you off on a freeway, immediately your glandular system fires up so you can go ahead and fight them <laughs> to the death if necessary. But we find that if we just take a moment and just breathe deeply, focus only on the breath, we get a relief from that adrenal fatigue in a very short period of time, that adrenal stress. And so the breath is number one for so many reasons. Number two is hydration. Water is life. Water is the great feminine principle on this, pro on this planet, like our mother. So water is absolutely essential to life. Number three is proper nutrition. And the, the right type of nutrition prevents these. Number four, rest. Number five, exercise. Number six, detoxification. And number seven, our mind, body, spirit matrix. When we put them all together, now we have the basis for maintaining optimal health and aging very, very gracefully. You know, Brother Raheem, like you. I just had my 65th birthday. Yeah, I was like, like wow. you, you look great. <laughs> I did my I did my 152 push-ups this morning as well. Wow. Oh man. Nice. And those oh. seven principles are very doable. Like I that's think right. that that's something that everyone could definitely do if they just made an effort. Seems very doable. I agree with you completely. You look like you're not doing too bad a job at the seven principles, Marcy and Raheem. Yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> I just celebrated my 50th birthday. Everybody you look good, brother. Five, so, you know. Yeah, yeah. The only, the only difference now is I'm eligible to get one of those, what is it, the AARP cards? That's right. That's, That's not a bad club to be in either. Nah, I'm, I'm getting ready to put in for my card. That's right. I need those savings. So, That's so, right. Marcy Lee, did you have one more question before we close it out? Well, there was one question. Um, you spoke on virology earlier, and yes. there was something that I read in the book in regards to pseudoscience compared to um, religion. I, you, you phrase it in a certain way, but you compare it the two. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you could just kind of go over that a little bit. Stevie Wonder, one of the brilliant lights of a generation, saying these words, and I repeat them so often, when you believe in things that you don't understand, then you suffer. Superstition ain't the way. And these days, the misuse, misapplication of science in, in dictating public policy is so abusive that it's almost as if people have submitted their logic 
and just buy into it. Why? Because Anthony Fauci is the man. He's on TV every day. Well, some of us have known about Anthony Fauci since January 1986 when he made the prediction that it, within five to 10 years, tens of millions of American heterosexuals will be dead of HIV and AIDS. And it never happened. That was the year he became the head of National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases. And he's still in that position. And now, why is this man now telling us about COVID? I call him Anthony Pinocchio Fauci, and for good reason. <laughs> so the corruption of science accompanies the corruption of literacy. And when we give up our ability to be literate and to read and to understand what we are reading, and when we read terminologies that we don't understand, just, you know, with the internet and mobile technologies, you can look up a word and get an understanding of what people are talking about almost instantly. So there's really no excuse for us to be going through life suffering disproportionately because we just don't know. And far too many of us, realizing the weakness of that position, say, I'm just going to trust in these invisible deities that they will catch my back and do my self-interest, in essence saying, they'll read the literature for me. All right. In closing, Kiwi Awadu. That's how you pronounce the name, right? Yeah, Kitty, like Speedy Kitty. Yeah. Ladies used to call me Quick Draw, but I'm not going to admit that here. In closing, I know it's going to be a lot of people that want to ask you questions, want to follow up, and they definitely going to want to follow you instead of Anthony Fucci. <laughs> <laughs> how can they get in contact with you? But before you tell them how you can get in contact with you, I need you to plug your 38th book and let us know <laughs> what the book is about. Okay. I just ordered my own galley print of the book today, so I don't have a mock-up of the new book. But with the new book and the other books, you can find them at my website. Here's just three of them. There is Panic, what the coronavirus pandemic tells us about the state of the world. Another recent book, and Brother Raheem, and Sister Marcy Lee, we've got to talk about this book because we are boots on the ground right now. This book, The Blackest Soil, Africa Can Feed the World, is awesome. And we actually have four large projects right now on the African continent. We're talking about thousands of acres of land that are, people are calling me after they read the book, say, we got 500 acres in, in Nigeria. We have 200 acres in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Oh. We're, we're interrupting an Indian group from India that was buying 1,000 acres in Uganda. We've decided to interrupt them and beat them to the purchase of that land. So we're mm -hmm. on the ground and we're changing the reality. And this is one of my favorite books, Futuronomics. Positioning Your Enterprise to Win in a New Global Economy, the new book entitled, it's a very sad book, and I've, I had a hard time writing it, called Panic, the pa not Panic, uh, it's called, um, what's it called, doggone it, <laughs> Fade to Black, the Passing of a Great Race. In the book, I predict African Americans only have 45 more years of existence in this country. It's incredible what we are witnessing, and a lot of people don't notice it. So they can go to keidikidi.biz. You can contact me from there. You can see a catalog of all of my books. I have two, three more books to come out in fairly rapid succession by next summer. Plus, I'm updating a series of my older books so that they reflect more our modern times. Oh, wow. My brother, it definitely was a pleasure speaking to you. You are one of our esteemed elders. I always look 
forward to listening to you and we're going to have to continue this conversation mm-hmm. because I, 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 I was um, reading about that book um, about the soil in Africa and I definitely want to get me a copy and, and um, we're going to continue this conversation. That's right. You get me, I'll get your mailing address after the show. We'll get those right out to you and to both of you. You've done a brilliant job with this interview. I really am very proud and honored. I'm, I am an elder now, and I'm being graced with such beauty in my life. I just started a new cooking television show that looks like it's going to get wide distribution. And just this week, I get invited to be a correspondent on the Kampala Uganda uh, television network. So oh, wow. it's the world is ours to claim. We're African people. I am because we are. So I claim my greatness as I claim our greatness, like fingers on the same hand, unless we acknowledge, appreciate, respect, respond to, and support each other, that hand will never know its strength. Mm-hmm. So in this conversation, I see that hand oh, is wow. stronger than it's ever been before. I'll say. All right. Thank you, the, thank you for the invitation. I look forward to every opportunity to not only be with you and to share what I do, but also to witness the brilliance of your light. We always remember, as we reach for the stars, we stand upon the shoulders of giants. Mm. Absolutely. I say. I say, thank you. I say. All right. Peace.